Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. And I'm Grace Wan. This is your weekly conversation about where we live. And what matters most. We are live. And we are local. Every Monday night. Right here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. In the last year, more school districts have called for book bans than in the past. This disturbing trend affects classes like classics like The Diary of Anne Frank, The Grapes of Wrath, and The Great Gatsby. But bans are also targeting new titles, many which center on LGBTQ plus topics. We'll talk to San Francisco City Librarian Michael Lambert about book bans, and we'll also discuss the latest of the city libraries. And we'll take your questions. Later this hour, we'll talk about the return of Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, the free festival of country music that returns live to Golden Gate Park this weekend. But first, we're going to talk about downtown and efforts by property owners to slash the value of their buildings in order to decrease their property taxes. To tell us more, I'm joined by Kevin Trong. He's a staff writer for the San Francisco Standard. Welcome to State of the Bay, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're delighted to have you on. Um, So, Kevin, lots of ink has been spilled about the state of the financial district and the fact that workers are just not returning to downtown in the numbers before that that they were in before the pandemic. So you've written a lot about this. And for our listeners, tell us how much of downtown is vacant. I mean, I think you compared it to 35 empty Transamerica buildings. Yeah. So the vacancy rate currently in, in downtown, and if you include that with what's called the availability rate, which is, you know, uh, uh, spaces that are technically leased, but available to uh, to be leased to, to somebody who wants to come in, something like 25 million square feet. Now, that's higher than pretty much any other moment in San Francisco's history, higher than the dot-com crash and, and the Great Recession. So we're seeing availability rates, you know, almost at 30%, which is uh, pretty, pretty unprecedented. And, and like you said, the equivalent number is something like 35 uh, Transamerica pyramids sitting empty. Well, that doesn't sound good, but help us put that impact um, in context. I mean, how much of San Francisco's budget or gross domestic product depends on downtown um, revenue? So prior to the pandemic, downtown and and I guess larger, uh, what the city calls the economic course, that's part of the Mission Bay, Mm -hmm. as well as some of the outer neighborhoods, of uh, downtown were responsible for something like 70 percent of the city's gdp um and you know with the oh sorry 70 percent of its uh, sales tax revenue and 40 percent of the city's jobs and a majority of, of its gdp and with the changes that the pandemic have um brought to the way that we work the work patterns that we have um, that has majorly taken a step off the, the cliff. Now, we're seeing some of the most impacted uh, neighborhoods in the pandemic as as the ones that are downtown, if you look at sales tax revenue and, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, and when you were saying that we talked about an economic zone, we're talking about the financial district, we're talking about Mission Bay, where the Warrior Stadium is and, and mm-hmm. um, uh, UCSF, Those that that's the area we're talking about. Right. Exactly, exactly that. Yeah, and so there have been notable vacancies and employers who have left. Um, so tell us a little bit about, I mean, I think we know some of the tech employers who've left and kind of the absence that has created. Totally. So you have uh, companies like uh, Block, which was formerly known as Square, moving to a fully remote status. You have companies like Stripe, you know, a major financial technology company moving a south to South San Francisco. You have companies like Airbnb and Yelp moving fully remote. 
Um, and what's ironic is that, you know, in the last great downturn, which is the Great Recession, um, the city's economic development strategy had to do with attracting these sorts of technology companies. And, you know, when, when I was talking to experts, they said we're a bit of a victim of our own success in sort of creating a monoculture uh, economy in San Francisco. We kind of fostered the exact companies that would be able to leave um, mm-hmm. in, in, in a downturn like the one we've seen uh, during the pandemic. And ironically enough, a lot of these companies were the ones that developed the tools that allow us to <laughs> telecommute and work. I mean, we're running out of um, words to kind of describe the Great Recession, the Great Resignation, and now the Great Economic Downturn for San Francisco. So the, there is this potential loss in the value of commercial real estate when you don't have tenants. Um, mm-hmm. What might that short-term decline in commercially proper, commercial property value be for San Francisco? So San Francisco, according to a study conducted by the Institute of uh, Taxation, um, is actually one of the hardest hit by these declining property values. And part of that is because of what I was saying before, we're a victim of our own success. So we have a lot of our uh, worker base, uh, particularly those that work in offices, in knowledge work, in technology, professional services. These are the ones that can actually go remote. So uh, according to the study projected by uh, some New York economists, San Francisco could see a property uh, value decline of something like 43%. That's higher than New York, L.A., Texas. Um, and, and that spells major issues for the city's budget if it does come to pass. When you say major issues, I mean, what, what are we talking about? What's, what could possibly happen? Right. So San Francisco's uh, revenue is really, really reliant on property tax. So property tax is actually the single largest source of uh, revenue that the city sees higher than business tax and, and sales tax and um, uh, obviously uh, support from the federal and, and state government. So a major issue with that uh, inflow of money could lead to, you know, some of the things that we saw in the Great Recession, which is cuts to services, cuts to city departments, uh, you know, cuts to schools, um, major layoffs for, for city departments that really do uh, uh, the foundational work of making this city function. Wow. Um, In a recent piece, you were talking about um, which particular property owners were seeking to reduce their um, assessments. Can you tell us a little bit about those buildings? I mean, there's some iconic ones in that group. Totally. Yeah. So this is a kind of uh, an annual process by which uh, property owners across the city, you know, seek to kind of lower their property tax bill by basically saying their properties aren't worth as much as the city um, initially uh, has assessed. Uh, so this kind of happens on, a, on an annual basis, but it definitely has up, uh, seen an uptick over the last couple of years. Um, in 2020 and 2021, I think the number is nearly double uh, mm. that of the, the two years before. And, and we're seeing, you know, speaking of Transamerica, we're see, seeing the owners of the Transamerica Pyramid Complex seeking to uh, cut their uh, assessed value by half. The, we're seeing the owners of the Westin St. Francis, obviously one of the um, most uh, notable and largest hotels in, in San Francisco trying to cut their property value by, by 90%. We're seeing Uber Mission Bay uh, headquarters, which um, you know was one of the major coups of the city's uh, uh, real estate development over the last couple of years, now seeking to cut their property tax values and property tax assessments. So it's kind of happening across the board here. Well, they're asking for the requests. How, how has the city responded? Right. So 
basically how it works is that the uh, property owners kind of dispute their property values to what's called the Assessment Appeals Board, which is a, a kind of independent city body. And then the city's assessor recorder, which is in charge of determining these values and determining um, the uh, tax that these properties owe, uh, creates their own argument. And then the uh, appeals board makes a determination based off of that. Just because, you know, for example, a property owner wants to revalue their property at one dollar mm-hmm. that does happen <laughs> from time to time um doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to get that so you, you have to have the evidence of, of both sides um presented to the board and, and the board sort of makes a determination based off of that. i mean assessing value at one dollar seems like a donald trump thing to do <laughs> <laughs> you'd be surprised at, at the, the the building owners trying to, to, to pull that one <laughs> well you in your reporting you've noted that thanks to proposition 13 there might be a little bit of relief for property owners tell us we we often don't hear a good silver lining of prop 13 so share that with us yeah, so the thing with Proposition 13 is that it limits the uh, assessed value. It limits the value that a property can be assessed at every year by 2%. So even if, for example, uh, you know, let's say your property, uh, you purchase your property at $100 million and the market value is $120 million, uh, it can actually only go up by 2%. So it can only mm-hmm. be valued at $102 million in that first year, and then you only have to pay taxes on, on that. And that actually protects the city a little bit, too, acts as a firewall, um, because uh, even though that even though uh, a, a building's property value might decrease on the, on the market, it may not actually hit the property tax rolls in that way because they're actually assessed at a lower value. What I think has been really interesting about your reporting um, is that it helps your readers, our listeners, understand how tied our city services are to the rental lease of these commercial buildings. As you said earlier, so much of what we provide in the city depends on people renting these office buildings. Um, And I'm curious, what is the city doing to prepare for the potential of reduced tax revenues? Well, first, they're trying to put a number on it. So there's a a, a few uh, letters of information uh, research requests that the Board of Supervisors have put out to the controller's office, to the uh, assessor recorder's office, to basically uh, gauge the impact of what this could look like on, on first on our tax revenue and, and by extension on the city's budget. Um, ultimately, a lot of the folks that I'm, I'm talking to is that uh, say that, you know, we have over-demand. Uh, we have overbuilt our office space, particularly in a downtown that's pretty homogenous when it comes to the kinds of uses it has. So, you know, part of what the city might need to do is look for new uses, you know, turning these um, more vacant buildings into something that's an entertainment venue or perhaps even residential uses. I mean, that comes with some challenges, but if we have too much of one space and not enough of another, it kind of lends itself to its own uh, solution there as well. Right. I think um, folks like Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce last week, he was advocating to add more housing to downtown. But as you point out, it's not that easy to convert an empty office building to housing. Um, is Do you do you know if the city is actually looking that at, looking to that as a solution? Uh, well, the city says um, it's being a little coy mm. when it comes to that sort of stuff. When I talk to developers, um, you know, they say some things will need to change in order to make it a little bit more feasible, um, whether that's incentives from the state government, which has already started to put some money in the budget for that, whether mm-hmm. that is, um, you know, uh, ease in or streamline permitting, 
streamlined a design review, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, it's a, it's a capital issue. A lot of these uh, conversion projects are, are really expensive. But if the city and the state, and honestly, the country think that this is a this is a problem, this is a nationwide issue. Mm-hmm. Um, then they're going to need to put the money behind making um, making sure our, our downtowns are, are, are vibrant or whatever the next phase of our downtown look like um, fits with, with our uh, 2020, post-2020 world. Right. Well, you mentioned, I mean, it is a nationwide issue. I mean, this is all pandemic-related. But San Francisco does seem pretty far behind other cities in terms of getting people back to work and coping with this issue of vacant spaces. Why is that? There's a few reasons why San Francisco has been particularly hard hit. Um, in terms of the downtown vi- vibrancy, vitality, it's what I mentioned before. The fact is our downtown is very single use. You know, we, whereas uh, other cities have maybe universities, have mm. um, uh, artistic sort of outlets, have more restaurants and cafes that aren't necessarily serving that downtown population. Um, we have a very, very nine to five downtown office that has been developed over the last few years decades. And the other thing is, you know, like I said before, we have a large portion of our population, our, our, our office-going population, working in these knowledge work fields, which are easy to do um, mm-hmm. down, uh, at, not in the office. Yeah, not in the like, office. Um, you know, if, if you just need a laptop rather than an entire floor of office space, I think, you know, uh, some companies will make the determination that that makes sense and is quite frankly cheaper. Right. Well, tell us, what should we be looking out for in the next few months ahead? Mm-hmm. So, like I said, uh, there's going to be some research and some new models presented to the Board of Supervisors um, starting next month, I believe, um, that'll basically put a number on uh, how much impact that, that these larger changes to the commercial real estate world will uh, will lead to. And from then on, I, I, I expect to see a bunch of... Uh, activity at the board, potentially at the state level, once these numbers start coming out, to actually legislate um, how we would start to change the uses of maybe some of these underutilized office buildings, um, try to revive some of these places that have been closed down or uh, struggling over the last couple of years. Um, and and I, I would also keep an eye out for things making the office to residential conversion process easier. Um, you know, there's some policies that have happened that have been really successful down in Los Angeles that maybe we could import up here as well. Well, as the store develops, I hope that you'll come back, Kevin, to help us wade through it. Would love to be back. Great. Well, that was Kevin Trong. He's a staff writer at the San Francisco Standard. And if you're not reading the Standard or Kevin, I want to put in a plug for it. Lots of great coverage of local issues. Um, And coming up next, we'll be talking to Michael Lambert. He's a San Francisco City librarian, and we'll be chatting about banned books and what's up at the library. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. According to the advocacy group PEN America, in the last year, over 1,600 books have been banned by school districts across the country. This covers almost over 1,200 different authors, 290 illustrators, and even 18 translators. Some of the books may be familiar to you. Beloved by Toni Morrison, 1984 by George Orwell, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, but other titles might surprise you. The Diary of Anne Frank, and even Carrie by Stephen King. Often books are targeted because of LGBTQ plus themes they center on. And indeed, according to PEN America, 41% of the books that are banned are are taken off the shelves because of LGBTQ themes, protagonists, and secondary characters. Here with me to talk about book bans and all things library is San Francisco's favorite city librarian, Michael Lambert. Welcome back to State of the Bay, Michael. Thank you so much, Grace. It is wonderful to be here. Well, before we get into it, I just wanted to let our listeners know that this is State of the Bay on local public radio, and we're talking about banned books, and we'd love to hear from our listeners um, if they have any questions about banned books. You know, State of the Bay listeners, were books banned from your school or library growing up? What books were they, and how did you get around the ban? And if you have any questions for Michael Lambert, the city librarian, give us a call or drop us a line. You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255, or email us at State of the Bay at KALW.org. You can also find us on Twitter. We're at State of Bay. So, Michael, I mean, as a librarian, it must pain you to even think about books being banned. Um, what do you make about of this rise in book bans? It's so true. Here in San Francisco, we are radical, militant, intellectual freedom <laughs> fighters. You know, we've been celebrating banned books week since its inception 40 years ago. Uh, just last week, we had director Aaron Sorkin and our, our mayor, London Breed, and our team digital media lab, and we were uh, hosting a press conference. We are partnering with Broadway SF uh, on their adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird to raise awareness of this important uh, literary classic. And uh, as part of that, we're giving away free copies of To Kill a Mockingbird to any teens in San Francisco. Wow. Is that something that you can go pick up at any library branch? That's true, yes. Okay. I'm just you heard it here, everybody. If you want a free copy of To Kill a Mockingbird, head to your local library. Um well I think we all agree that reading is power, but what would you say to somebody who is concerned that their child is maybe not ready to absorb certain material and you know, to the people who are trying to ban these books? Well, that's really the point of intellectual freedom is stimulating these conversations. Parents, caregivers, family, friends, uh, with young people, that is really the purpose of intellectual freedom, the freedom to know, the freedom to seek knowledge and information, to fight censorship. That is at the very core of the mission of the public library. I mean, quite frankly, we have something in our collection to offend everyone. (laughs) Well, does San Francisco do anything to restrict books by age or theme? Is there like a, a – I just remember growing up, there was kind of a section of the library that you really weren't supposed to go to. Um, <laughs> does the city do that? No, we don't have any restrictions. Uh, if you have a library card, you have full access to the collection. That being said, we do have designated zones of every library for children Uh, You know, we have teen spaces, and then we have our adult collections for fiction and nonfiction. But there are no restrictions uh, to what anyone can check out with their library card. 
Yeah. And I mean, if you were an adult, um, how should you help uh, a child or a young person with the difficult material in a book? Um, you know, let's say you're a parent and your your child wants to check out something that maybe you think is a little bit uh, advanced for them. Do you have any advice? Well, a lot of these decisions come down to individuals' own comfort level and, and how they want to, you know, raise their children and their family. But that being said, I would recommend that any parent or caregiver read the book uh, either first or with their their child. And that's going to be the best way to have the kind of dialogue that needs to be had about the content, the story, the characters, the themes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, when you, um, you've been a librarian for so long, and I mean, there seems to be this real uptick um, in trying to ban books, and certainly we're in a, uh, a difficult and fractious political period in our country. But if you could talk to somebody who's trying to ban a book, I mean, what would you say to them about that? I, I know you're a radical intellectual who wants everybody to read, <laughs> but I mean, you know, is there a persuasive argument to be made to somebody who's so determined to, to ban a book? Well... We have a process here in San Francisco. We don't see a lot of challenges to items in our collections, but it it does happen. And we have a process. There is a form that people can fill out, request for reconsideration. And one of the questions that we ask people is, have you read the book in its entirety? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, sometimes people have not, but... Mm. um, I, w- I would just really focus on explaining the mission of the public library and intellectual freedom is at our core. It's one of our you know, core tenets of our profession is to provide free and open access to information to anybody and everybody in the community. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things, uh, the nice things about how I, the public library handled this past week was um, the the website for the city focused on. I'm sorry about that. The website for the city focused on readers who overcame restrictions to read. Are there any stories that you'd like to share? Yeah, thank you for highlighting that. I noticed on our children's website there were over half a dozen individuals that were profiled. There was George Moses Horton. He was enslaved in North Carolina in the early 1800s, and he went on to become a poet that uh, wrote some incredible poetry. Uh, they were poems about love, friendship, humor, happiness, and grief. He, he was also really the first African-American slave poet to write about the injustices of slavery. Uh, some of the other notable people profiled uh, include Anne Frank. We all know her story about her diary and documenting her life spent in hiding. Uh, we also profiled Sylvia Mendez, and, you know, years before Brown versus the Board of Education, there was Mendez versus the West Westminster School District, and Sylvia Mendez uh, was a young Mexican-American who wanted to go to school in California, and her family fought school segregation successfully uh, over seven years before the Supreme Court took up Brown versus the Board of Education. And finally, I would just mention uh, Malala Yousafzai. And Malala was not going to let the Taliban stop her from being educated. And uh, I think many people are familiar with her story. She was shot, and 
uh, in July 2013, less than one year after she was shot, she was invited to speak at the United Nations in New York City. Uh, in October of 2014, she became a Nobel Prize Peace winner. So there are so many inspirational stories on this website that you highlighted. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a really good one, and especially for the kids. For kids who don't want to read, you got to bring that out as examples. These people weren't allowed to read, and they managed to do it. So <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely going to trot that out. Um, I wanted to reintroduce the program. This is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW Bay Area. I'm Grace Wan. We're talking about books and what should be on your reading list and State of the Bay listeners. We've also been talking about ba- booked books that have been banned, and we'd like to hear from you if that ever happened to you growing up. And we've got the San Francisco City Librarian here with us, Michael Lambert. If you have any questions for him, give us a call or drop us a line. You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. Or you can find us on Twitter. We're at State of Bay. Um, We have a listener here on the topic of banned books. Um, They write, we shouldn't be banning books, but at the same time, Not every kid is ready for all material. Does a librarian have recommendations about where to go for age-appropriate guidelines for content? Does the library publish a guide? Michael? That's an excellent question, and there are different uh, reading rating systems. I think the best tool is actually your neighborhood librarian. We have children's librarians. We have teen librarians at all 28 locations. And really having a personalized conversation, that's going to be the best way that a reader or a parent can tailor their individual interest and needs with our collection. Just really one-to-one having that dialogue of what one's interest and um, reading level may be Mm -hmm. and matching that with our collection. Good advice from the city librarian himself. You know, Michael, I wanted to turn to to the libraries. Um, You've been on the show before, and I had the pleasure of chatting with you then. And the last time we spoke, the city was just starting its program to waive library fines. Um, How has that gone? We are so proud to have gone fine-free. Years ago, Mayor Breed sponsored that legislation, and it has been a smashing success. In fact, the foundational white paper where we made the business case to go find free, it's called Long Overdue. You can look it up. But many jurisdictions around the country have emulated what we've done here in San Francisco and used that white paper to make their own business case before their own board of trustees or, or library commission. Mm-hmm. Um, has, it, has it had a negative um, budgetary impact? I guess no. Not at all. We are so fortunate in San Francisco. We are arguably the best supported public library in the country. And (laughs) I think that's a large reason why we are the premier urban library in the country. We have not experienced any more loss. Um, It's really counterintuitive. We've, We've removed a negative service interaction at the service desk. People no longer have to feel shame about, you know, keeping a book out longer than the, the loan period. Uh, and in fact, you know, we're, we're just, we're very generous in how long folks can check out books. We do want our books back. So if, if you keep <laughs> the book forever, we are going to send you a bill, but we have not had a problem with it. Right. Well, has, I mean, COVID shut down the libraries um, at the very beginning. Has the library system rebounded since then? I am so proud to say the books are back. The San Francisco Public Library is coming back stronger than ever. 
I was just looking at our data recently. We had our second best July ever in terms of circulation, over 1 million. So we're back now to averaging about 1 million uh, circulation per month. So circulation is the number of books checked out. Uh, the composition has that of that has changed. It's about 50-50 now with physical books uh, being half of our circulation and then digital. People really love our e-books, our streaming video, uh, our mobile apps, the streaming music. Uh, so we have best-in-class uh, collections, best-in-class offerings. Uh, people can get our mobile app and just it really find anything and everything that they would want. Well, we have a listener who writes, um, Jim writes, did you know you can check out ebooks at the library? I love the feel of a book, but if folks are worried about handling books post-COVID, this is a nice alternative. Um, <laughs> you know, Michael, for people who don't know about that, how do you check out an ebook at the library? Well, I would say just go to the App Store, look up San Francisco Public Library, uh-huh. and that's going to be your portal to our collections. For those of you who are like me that still prefer a hardcover book, you can use the mobile app to put books on hold. If you see something at Costco or in the bookstore and you don't want to pull the trigger on the purchase, this is a great way to try something uh, before you add it to your collection. You can manage your account. You can see what books you have on hold. You can... Uh, renew your books earlier if you want to, or you can just find the ebooks and then click on the hyperlink, and that will direct you to other mobile apps in order to download the ebook or the the movie that you want to watch. You can download movies on the uh, the library app. Is that what you're saying? That's right. We have an incredible <laughs> app called Canopy with a K. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a company that started here in San Francisco. It's very elegant. It has world cinema, documentaries, feature films. It has the Criterion Collection. We also have another app called Hoopla. Hoopla has feature films, but it also has comic books, graphic novels, digital audio books. Uh, I use it for streaming music because I can find a lot of the music that I grew up listening to in the 80s and 90s on there. I love it. <laughs> I, I think you, you've just helped me cut down my our, my family's Netflix and Hulu account um, costs by just telling us about that. I, I really had no idea. That's amazing. Um, we have another question here. Carol asks, um, I have so many books, and I'd like to know if the library takes donations. These are books I've read just once. It's a mix of hardbacks and paperbacks. Do you guys While take donations? we do not... Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. I'm glad the listener asked it uh, because our library support group, the Friends and Foundation of the San Francisco Public Library, they accept donated books, and they have a headquarters down in Dogpatch. Okay. So you can make an appointment to drop off your books, and what they do is they sell those books to raise money for the library's programs and services. Oh. A lot of our signature programs, like Uh, the Summer Learning Program, Summer Stride, our upcoming One City, One Book Program uh, coming up in like four weeks from now. Uh, The Friends help pay for those programs with the money that they generate from selling used books. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, you know, the the library, okay, now we can tell people it not only allows you to check out a physical book, you can stream movies, you can listen to Michael Lambert's favorite 80s, 90s playlist, which I think we're going to have to find out what's on that, Michael. I mean, is there a song of choice that we need to know about? 
<laughs> well, you know, in just the past week, I checked out Oasis. I checked out Public Enemy. So it's pretty wide ranging what my musical interests are. I mean, you might be the coolest city librarian in the nation, as well as running one Aww. of the best libraries. Um, but there's also the library also has served this purpose of of kind of filling in for social services in some ways. Um, and again. I know that the, the the library has both risen to the occasion but struggled with an aspect of what is city life, which is people who, you know, occupy spaces at the library, stay there for long periods of time, maybe unhoused, maybe struggling with some mental illness. How has the library been handling that? Well, one thing about the San Francisco Public Library and our staff we are mission driven. So we are going to lean into public service and the challenges and the opportunities that we face. You know, during COVID, we completely shut down all of our libraries and two thirds of our staff were activated as disaster service workers. So they were staffing hotels, Mm -hmm. sheltering people experiencing homelessness, food pantries, COVID testing sites, uh, you name it, contact tracing. And I would say now that we've recovered, you know, we still are fundamentally here to help people live their best lives. You know, all are welcome at the San Francisco Public Library. We're here to uh, serve everybody and, and help people get connected with the services that they need. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a listener who's written in something um a little bit adjacent to that. Uh, The listener writes, the other day I was in the Central Library and I just felt uncomfortable and a little unsafe both outside the library and inside. There are a lot of people around and in the library who do not seem to be mentally all there. I hate to deprive someone of a safe space, but I sort of felt deprived myself of a quiet and safe environment. I know this is a citywide problem, but what can and should the library be doing? Michael? Well, thank you for the, the feedback we aspire to offer a safe and welcoming experience at the San Francisco Public Library. So we have many investments. We have a dedicated security team. We also have a work order with the Sheriff's Department. They help secure the entrance of many of the municipal buildings and the Civic Center. Uh, We've also contracted with Urban Alchemy. They are greeters. They are restroom attendants. They help us to, you know, monitor what's going on and keep people safe. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to report that just the other day uh, we were able to transition one of our urban alchemy practitioners onto our staff as a custodian. So the, at wow. the end of the day, that's a workforce development program. So we take a holistic approach to safety and security at the library mm-hmm. and You know, all of our staff are here to provide the highest possible level of service that we can provide. Mm -hmm. Well, if a patron wasn't feeling comfortable, then is is the um, recourse to maybe go talk to a librarian and and ask for a little help? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I want to reintroduce the program again. This is State of the Bay on local public radio. I'm Grace Wan. We're talking to Michael Lambert. He's a San Francisco City librarian, and we're talking all things library and answering your questions. You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can email us at stateofthebay at org, or you can send us a tweet. We're at State of Bay. Um, so we have a tweet from Scott here. He asks, are there any books that the, you consciously decline to host in the library because they encourage race, racist thinking, perhaps for budget reasons or not wanting to financially support racist authors? 
And would that be a kind of banning in a sense? What do you think, Michael? Uh, There are no books that I know of that we have made that kind of conscious decision not to purchase. Um, You know, I know we have books by conservative authors like Ann Coulter, for example, that, um, you know, some people in our community have filled out the request for reconsideration form Mm -hmm. in the past. Um, But again, that's really part of our mission as a public library is to provide collections on a wide range of topics from a wide range of different uh, opinions. And, um, you know, I I think we we do pretty well. We have one of the largest book budgets uh, per capita of any urban library system in the country. And and that really comes back to the level of support that we enjoy here in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you decide which books to carry? I mean, so many are published every year. And, you know, do you look at bestseller lists or how are decisions made about what is carried in the library? You know, I think that is really library science. We have um, a chief of collections and technical services that leads a division that handles the selection, the acquisition, the processing, the cataloging, um, and, and they do a phenomenal job. We, we have the resources to essentially buy anything and everything that our residents want to have in our collection. If we do not have something that people want, uh, they can fill out a suggest- suggestion for purchase form, mm. and we'll get it for them. Wow. If, if we're unable to procure that book through our vendors, we also have interlibrary loan as a backstop. So mm-hmm. we can find another library in the country that has the book, and we can borrow it from another library's collection. Well, we have a listener here who says, um, before COVID, our child took out a few books that we could not return because the library was closed. I knew we would not be fine, but I wanted to say that waiving fees has taken a burden off my mind. We can afford the fine, but it's so nice to have something off the to-do list and not have to rush a book back because we're afraid of a fine. But we are good about getting our books back by the due date or just a little after it. So <laughs> praise for the policy. Praise, But they, you, you do uh, want that book back, right? <laughs> that's Right. I love it, though. I love that feedback. Um, Earlier, we were talking about just the impact that COVID had on the um, library system. And you had mentioned that two thirds of your staff had actually gone out to volunteer or I don't even think volunteer to work in, you know, frontline areas. I mean, there have been lots of articles written about librarians across the country who feel like they're suffering from a little bit of burnout partially because of the social services that libraries now provide, partially because of COVID. How are you handling um, or helping your staff with, you know, the challenges of being kind of front-facing and having customers and clients all day long in their spaces? That's an excellent question. And we're taking a multifaceted approach. I think, you know, first and foremost, I will acknowledge it has been, It's been really hard. Um, Our staff stepped up here in San Francisco more than library workers in any other municipality in the country. So I do want to recognize the staff. Um, Working for the city and county of San Francisco, we have excellent benefits. We have excellent health benefits. There's a health services system that has other health and wellness resources that we can tap into beyond our, you know, insurance plan. 
uh, here at the San Francisco Public Library, internally, we have a wellness committee. So it's a cross-functional team. We pull staff from various divisions. Actually, they get to volunteer if they want to serve on this committee. And the wellness committee, they put together different promotions and activities throughout the year. Uh, for example, they've organized a flu shot clinic uh, this coming Friday for staff to be able to take advantage of while they're on site at the main library. But I, I would say, you know, the broader issues, you know, we're not immune as library workers. I think there's a, a malaise nationally that we're all still, you know, recovering from COVID the past couple of years. So next year we're going to be embarking on a strategic planning process. So we're going to be doing a listening tour internally inside our organization, lots of employee engagement, just to reconnect with the staff, uh, understand what their aspirations are for the future, and, you know, revisit our mission, uh, you know, develop some, some values, some core values. So we do want to do that deep work focusing on our organizational culture as well. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we were talking at the start of the hour, the segment about, you know, banned books and the politics of that. And, you know, there's a, a popular program called the Drag Queen, Queen Story Hour. And, you know, earlier this year, one of those story hours or several, I think, were kind of um, taken over by people who were unhappy with Drag Queen Story Hour. I think that in some cases, Proud Boys. Have you had that happen recently um, in the libraries uh, with story hours or has it been largely placid? Well, first, I want to say that San Francisco Public Library is proud to say we were the first urban library in the country to host a Drag Queen Story Hour. <laughs> it was at our uh, Eureka Valley branch, uh, the Harvey Milk Memorial branch in the Castro. Um, so that was, I don't know, 2016, 2017. And that program, like many things that we start here in San Francisco, was emulated in other communities. It is sad to see forces trying to come out and block access and stop these programs. I know the county librarian in Alameda County very well, Cindy Chadwick, and uh, she was very brave in, you know, standing up to those Proud Boys that showed up in, in San Lorenzo. We hosted a Drag Queen Storytime uh, in quick succession after they had that event in uh, Alameda County. It was a few weeks later. We hosted a Drag Queen Story Hour in our main library, Fisher Children's Center, and it was very successful. We had, you know, a large crowd, probably 50, 60 people showed up, and it was delightful. Mm. And we were very successful, didn't have any issues. Yeah, well, there's nothing like a drag queen reading the story for you. There's just it's, it's it just brings it to life, literally. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about the physical plant. I mean, and some things that are happening in the library this fall. My understanding is that the Library Preservation Fund, which is the library's largest budget source, um, is coming up to po possibly a vote in front of the voters this fall. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, the Library Preservation Fund. Uh, it started in 1994. It was a resident-led uh, initiative, grassroots. Uh, the Friends of the Library gathered signature signatures and got it on the ballot. It passed overwhelmingly. So since 1994, the San Francisco Public Library has received two and a half cents uh, for every $100 in assessed property tax value. And that makes up probably 42% of our budget. Uh, the other part of the Library Preservation Fund is a dedicated uh, 
portion of the city's general fund, uh, approximately 2% comes to the library. So together, that provides very robust support uh, to keep all 28 libraries open uh, seven days a week. It provides, you know, the, the funding for the librarians, the staffing, the collections, uh, the technology, but also, you know, we're the only urban library that I know of that can self-fund our capital projects from our operating budget. We're currently renovating the historic Mission and Chinatown branches. Both are over 100 years old. Uh, and, you know, this wouldn't be possible without the level of support we enjoy in San Francisco. The Library Preservation Fund was renewed in 2007, and, you know, we're very appreciative of Mayor London Breed and the Board of Supervisors for uh, unanimously su supporting this and getting it on the ballot for November. Well, I have to say, the last time you were here at State of the Bay, I mean, the calls and the listener comments were just, it was clearly the library is everyone's favorite city department. <laughs> I think that's, oh, thank you. <laughs> that holds true tonight as well. Um, well, before I let you go, I, I do have to ask, as a librarian, do you get much time to read for pleasure? And what's on your book list? You know, I just read this book called Great Mondays. It's by an author, uh, Josh Levine, and it's how to design an organizational culture that your employees will love. So I, I like nonfiction. I read history, management books, uh, <laughs> memoirs. I just checked out uh, Leadership by Henry Kissinger, Six Studies in World Strategy. But I also want to plug our One City, One Book selection this year. Oh. This is Ear Hustle. So these are stories of daily life inside prison shared by those living it. And it's it's a book named after the Pulitzer Prize-nominated uh, podcast by the same name. And so this month of reading this book in the coming weeks, it's going to culminate in an event on Thursday, November 3rd in the Coret Auditorium. We're going to have the authors Erlon Woods and Nigel Poor in conversation with Piper Kerman. And Piper is the author of Orange is the New Black. So mm. if you haven't read This Is Ear Hustle, come down to your neighborhood library and pick up a copy. I mean, or you could get it on the app, or... I mean, there you we'll, go. I mean, here at KLW, <laughs> it's like Earl Wan and them. We've had them on before as well, and I, there's, some, there's some connections here to the station with the Ear Hustle. So big fan. I think that's a great recommendation for One City, One Book. How awesome is that? Right on. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think here at KLW, we work with the Media Center at San Quentin. Okay, last question. Is there a classic band book that you love? Um, I don't think any management books as far as I know, I've hit the band book list, but it, you know. <laughs> do you have one, Michael? <laughs> well, I got to give it up for To Kill a Mockingbird. I yeah. just saw the play at the Golden Gate Theater Saturday night, and what an extraordinary adaptation. Uh, so I, that that's my favorite. Yeah, it's a good one. It's it's a classic for a reason. Well, Michael Lambert, you have literally given us a lot to check out. Uh, the pun is intentional. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us here on State of the Bay. Thank you, Grace. Really enjoyed it. Pleasure. That was Michael Lambert, the San Francisco City Librarian. Definitely check out the app or check out your local library. There's a lot to find. Coming up after the break, my co-host Ethan Elkind will be talking about the return of Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, the free country music festival that comes to, the, to Golden Gate Park. Something to listen to.
This weekend, for the first time since 2019, San Francisco welcomes back Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, everyone's favorite free music festival in Golden Gate Park. The festival features an eclectic lineup of over 80 artists performing across six outdoor stages over three days beginning this Friday, September 30th, through Sunday, October 2nd. And here to tell us about the lineup is Bay Area Music Radio host, Bonnie Simmons. Bonnie, welcome to State of the Bay. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So glad you can join us. This is always a special time for music fans in the Bay Area to have Hardly Strictly uh, going on, but particularly now because it's going to be live for the first time in three years. So tell us a little bit about the history of Hardly Strictly Bluegrass for those who aren't familiar. It was started by San Francisco venture capitalist Warren Hellman, who's a descendant of you know, one of the real founders of Wells Fargo Bank. Can you tell us a little bit about how this came together? Yes. Warren was an unbelievable music fan, and he wanted to bring fantastic music to everyone as a gift to the city of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So as it grew, you know, the first year it was one stage and one day. And what year was that? 2000. Okay. Uh, and it has grown considerably. This is our 22nd year of the festival. Well, so in, in terms of the musicians that people can expect to hear, who are going to be performing this weekend? I am really looking forward myself on Friday to Charlie Crockett. And, and Joy Olatakun is just fantastic. Uh, Allison Russell will be there on Friday. Drive-by truckers will be there and many other folks. But if we jump to Saturday, of course, Steve Earle will be there. I think that Jerry Harrison and Adrian Ballou with Remain in Light should be pretty spectacular this year. Uh, I am especially excited that Elvis Costello will also be with us this year. Uh, We have some folks like Cedric Watson who will be coming up. Oh, we have something that we do on... Saturdays at the festival called Buddy Miller's Cavalcade of Stars. And Buddy curates a stage and brings in some people that he is really excited about. And this year, those will include Larry Campbell and Therese Williams, Kelsey Walden, uh, the Black Opry Review. And Buddy, of course, will be there with a band too, and Jim Lauderdale. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, Elvis Costello. Is this the first time that He's part of this festival. Oh, Elvis has played here three or four times. He has done Hardly Strictly over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, And he is a good friend to the festival. And each time he plays as he does, because Elvis is uh, that sort of person, he puts together something special. Mm. I promise that people are going to really enjoy what Elvis is going to be doing on stage on Saturday. Well, yet another artist to look forward to. So many great ones playing this weekend. But let's hear a clip from Sam Bush. He's a mandolinist and considered an originator of progressive bluegrass music. And this is the opening to the song Play By Your Own Rules. Sober wealth. Don't be 
somebody else's food. You've got to play by your own rules. All right, Sam Bush. I believe this is the first time that Sam has been at Hardly Strictly. All right, so this is a big deal then to have his debut. Yeah, we're excited here. about it. Yeah. Well, another band that we're going to be hearing from this weekend is Galactic, and we heard their song Into the Deep in the intro to this piece. Let's hear another one of their songs, Going Straight Crazy. All right. Hey, hey, na, 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 na. Hey, hey. Holding hands as we walk under the stars, babe. I want to give you my heart. It's like we're living in golden picture frame it's cliche but i swear we So, Bonnie, are you, uh, what do you make of Galactic? Are you a fan? I am a fan. It's amazing how eclectic the lineup is. I mean, what you can fit under hardly strictly bluegrass music. It, there is a, a lot of funk and, and, of course, traditional bluegrass, progressive bluegrass, all sorts of stuff for music lovers. So, Bonnie, what about Sunday on the festival? What can we look forward to? You know, the hard thing, this used to drive Warren crazy, too. Because Warren would get on a golf cart because he wanted to go to so many stages and see so many bands. And it would drive him wild when he looked at the schedule because he couldn't figure out how he was going to see everybody that he wanted to see. Yep. Every time I look at the schedule, I feel the same way about it. <laughs> there are so many good things. Uh, on Sunday, there's Lucius is playing. Marcus Mumford is on Sunday. Uh, you would also be able to hear the tallest man on earth will be with us. Uh, Dave Alvin and Jimmy Dale Gilmore are going to be presenting themselves together this year with the guilty ones. And of course, on Sunday, Emmy Lou Harris always closes out a stage. And that is a magical moment for all of us. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad to know that Warren suffered from what the rest of us suffer from, which is just too much great music to choose from. And I understand also that there's going to be tributes to some of the amazing artists that we've lost, unfortunately, during the pandemic. And some of them have been longstanding, hardly strictly regulars, uh, folks like John Prine, uh, Justin Towns Earl, and Nancy Bechtel, as well as David Olney, Jerry Jeff Walker, and a few others. Now, Nancy Bechtel was the sister of Warren Hellman. Is that right? Yes, and much loved by all of us. So it sounds like a real family of music lovers in the Hellmans. Uh, absolutely. The Hellman family, uh, three generations, have formed several bands. While Warren was alive, he had a band called The Wronglers. Hmm. Uh, and they have gone on to form several different bands. And each year, a band called the Go to Hellman Band plays. <laughs> well, we're just so lucky to have had someone like Warren Hellman to sponsor this uh, amazing festival each year. Uh, so I think we mentioned in the beginning that this is a free concert. No tickets are necessary. And I'll 
be on different stages spread throughout Golden Gate Park this weekend. Are there any other details that you want listeners to know? Uh, There is so much good information. If you have or have not attended the festival before, at hardlystrictlybluegrass.com, all kinds of information, uh, everything that you might want to know. And we also have the new HSB 2022 app. And that has maps and schedules and all kinds of information up there. Mm-hmm. Well, and we'll definitely put a link on our State of the Bay website as well. You know, people are always on their best behavior when they come out to Hardly Strictly. It just makes us smile to see how everybody treats each other while they're out there. And we expect that that will happen again this year. You know what I think is is kind of great is we're going to be offering vaccinations on site. Uh, and there is information about that online, too. Wow. Well, as if the free, excellent music wasn't enough of a service to have the public health service as well is really something. Well, once again, the website is hardlystrictlybluegrass.com. And Bonnie Simmons, thanks so much for all your work on the festival and also for coming on to State of the Bay and uh, telling folks what they can look forward to. And I hope everyone can make it out to Hardly Strictly Bluegrass this weekend. But thank you again, Bonnie, for coming on State of the Bay. Our pleasure, and thank you very much for telling folks about what we're up to this year. Absolutely. Me and my best friend Lillian and her blue tick dog sitting on the front porch Well, that's State of the Bay this week. I want to thank all of our guests and listeners this evening for being part of the conversation. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit our page on KALW.org. If you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, you can email us at stateofthebay at KALW.org. Up next week, we'll help you figure out how the propositions about the sports betting, um, what's going on with that, and we'll talk about the climate impacts of California dairies. Tonight's show was produced by me, Grace Wan, and Ann Harper. It was engineered by David Kwan, and D Minor was our board operator. I'm Grace Wan. Good night, and thanks for listening. possible your sonic scavenger it's monday and tonight i will be with you from 8 to 10 p.m so join me and catch a vibe right here on klw 91.7 fm 
and KALW.org. And the time now is 7 o'clock. This is 91.7 KALW San Francisco Bay Area and online at KALW.org. Where Q Finish CBC is next. Hello, I'm Flora Sidges Mundy. Hello, I'm Robbie.